Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Innovations in Education, eCampus News' podcast on the latest and greatest happenings in higher ed, ed tech this week. I'm Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. In this episode, we look at how digital tools and online learning can and should be more than just a substitute for in-person instruction, the importance of virtual communities in higher ed, and how to create a third-party solution process on campus. First, Louise Krimpotic, she's Vice President of Educational Enterprise at Digital Ed, makes, makes no bones about it. STEM subjects and remote learning have yet to come of age. And while she's not saying it can't happen, there are many ways in which it needs to improve. In her essay called Antiquated Online Learning Failed COVID's Test, Louise breaks it down this way. She writes, there's no doubt faculty want to improve online teaching, but they often have limited time and resources to do so. Engaging digital learning tools should help faculty by providing one, high quality multimedia visualizations that can bring difficult STEM concepts to life. Number two, varied modes of assessment to support academic integrity and allow students to demonstrate true understanding of concepts. Number three, Gamification and other alternative activities online, such as simulations, the use of kits, or other laboratory experiences. She has a number of other ones that go on, but I'll leave you to read that, which is up on the homepage. But she goes on, strategically integrating new digital technology into higher education courses has the potential to increase student success and knowledge of key concepts. Adopting digital tools offers additional opportunities for student learning with practice, exercises, and support. Digital learning platforms can also help schools better support faculty by offering automatic grading and content that faculty can easily customize to their individual teaching so they can focus on what they do best, teaching and working with students. I think we can all agree with Louise's sentiments here and um, look forward to seeing those technologies in place. Let's get to it. Next, in the essay entitled, Five Things COVID Showed Us About Virtual Communities, Katie Kapler, CEO of Inscribe, details how important virtual communities are for higher ed institutions. She offers up five up on the homepage at ecampusnews.com, but I'll tease you with just three. She writes, as the pandemic disrupted traditional places for community, many institutions responded with new digital solutions. And although many students are now heading back to campus, institutions have learned that there are important and sometimes unexpected benefits to these digital spaces and virtual communities, indicating that they are likely to persist. Number one, a centralized place for communications and notifications. Providing accurate, updated information is critical, but oftentimes hard to maintain. Websites get outdated quickly, and the process to update them can be long and complicated. Schools find themselves fielding phone calls and emails to keep students in the know, but the repetition drains resources and takes time away from other activities. Digital communities provide a centralized location to post up-to-date information that is readily available and easy to find. Number two, easier access to campus resources. Even prior to COVID, many schools expressed that key resources across campus were often underutilized by students. Examples included tutoring centers, health services, and career planning. It wasn't the services weren't there, they weren't available, but they were sometimes difficult to find or inconvenient to access. By providing the opportunity to connect with these resources in digital communities, institutions could immediately increase their visibility 
and make it easier for students to tap into them when they were needed. Number three, a dedicated place for faculty. Another thing institutions learned last year is that students aren't the only ones who feel the pressure. Faculty too had to adapt to a changing educational experience, deal with new anxieties and adapt quickly to new technologies. And they too have significant constraints on their time that made it difficult to connect synchronously. In response, institutions grew faculty-focused virtual communities that gave them their own space to engage, ask questions, share best practices, voice frustrations, and support each other. These digital spaces became a critical component of faculty development and communication as they could easily supplement synchronous professional development activities with content and resources that faculty can assess and collaborate over their own time. So yeah, it's funny to think that just three years ago that maybe a lot of these places didn't exist and that we all just kind of were thrown into these places as a result of a forced migration to remote learning. But it does seem to be kind of bearing out the fruit and will be sticking around as a, as a really important utility going forward. And finally, all colleges and universities need a reliable payment system. While payment solutions can be a headache, this doesn't have to be the case. More institutions are turning to third-party payment solution providers for processing and PCI compliance. There you go, another acronym for you, PCI which is a set of guidelines businesses must follow to protect customers and cardholders as credit card transactions are processed. Third-party solution providers can ease some of the burden on colleges and universities. I had the pleasure to host a conversation with a trio of professionals deep into this sort of implementation. Find it on the homepage under the title, How to Create a Third-Party Solution Process on Campus. This highlight is with Monique Polas. She's the assistant treasurer at Carnegie Mellon University and Becky Kello. She's the manager of treasury services, Western Washington University. Uh, they discuss the advantages of various automation techniques and the importance of what PCI means. Have a listen. But in the meantime, we can go on and maybe talk a little bit more about goals. Monique, maybe some of the goals that you may have when we talk about getting into a greater PCI compliance? Yeah, so staying PCI compliant is always a goal for the university. Also using our payment card practices to increase automation and improve user experience really drive business decisions and business process changes. I know right now, one of the things that, that we're working on implementing to our existing e-commerce platform is the ability for our domestic students to be able to pay with either credit card or ACH. So again, you know, kind of keeping that, that lens on the cost of doing business, not just for the university, but also for the student is, is very important to us. And, and you'll hear me say data automation over and over again, the value of getting your information into your system consistently in the same format with the same pr provided information really can link you into a lot of other processes that can, you know, you can find efficiencies in your workforce. And so we're, especially in finance, we're very focused on that right now because just like everybody else, we're doing less with, we're doing more with less. <laughs> we're doing more with less, not the other way around. <laughs> um, and so we have found a ton of benefit that I don't even know we would have really I don't know that, that that was part of the original goal of the implementation, but is really one of the most important 
parts of it for me now. Yeah, Becky, any thoughts on that? Like Monique, we're always looking to to uh, tighten the ship with PCI compliance and things change and departments are rogue and go out and do things. You got to rein them in. But yeah, and anything anything we can move to transact really through the e-commerce, student payments are already done that way and have been um, for a long time. The the fact that they're auto, they're integrated with Banner for us and real time postings is just so so great. It's it's helped with a lot of uh, gained a lot of efficiencies with bank reconciliations and things like that because the data is there. Sometimes I go to to uh, transact for data because it's sometimes easier to get out of there than it is out of Banner and definitely quicker because I I know it a little bit better. But yeah, we're always looking for for things to to improve on and make things better and more efficient for folks and improve the student experience, looking at ways to do mobile cashiering, I'll just use that term, for students because there's so many little events here and there that people want to accept payments. And I certainly don't want them writing credit card numbers down. And, you know, we the university, it hasn't been, hasn't come from on high, but especially after COVID, everybody wants to get their hands off of actual cash and currency. So they want to get out of that. And Anyway, that's that's kind of what we're looking at is how do we reduce that cash footprint and checks and how do we get it more automated? So that about wraps it up for this episode. Be sure to check back on ecampusnews.com for all the latest and greatest news and analysis for what's happening in the edtech space and higher education. Remember, eCampus is always free and always helping innovative educators just like you. Until next time, I'm Kevin Hogan.